Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Mark 1, 9 through 11. And as you are turning there, let me make one last call for our volunteer appreciation banquet, which is next Sunday evening at 6 o'clock, where we simply want to take an evening and say thank you to so many of you who contribute so much to the ministry here at First Baptist Church. We could not do it without you, and we just want to take an evening to be very intentional about saying thank you. If you intend to come, we really need you to RSVP, and the deadline for that is this coming Wednesday. And the simplest way to do that is to simply contact the church office, either by phone or by email but we will look forward to seeing you next Sunday night. The word inauguration, you familiar with that word? The word inauguration is defined as the act of officially putting someone into an important position or the ceremony at which this is done. We're probably most familiar with this term as it relates to something that looks like this, right? A presidential inauguration it has certain elements to it. Uh, so typically includes the swearing-in ceremony, the inaugural address, the pass and review where they go down uh, Pennsylvania Avenue. Lots of pomp and circumstance, and also lots of expense. I was shocked when I learned this week how much a presidential inauguration cost. Um, this is a 2016 Washington Post article, but it, it, it had the headline, How Much Does an Inauguration Cost and Who Pays for What? And it says, inaugurations are expensive, really, really expensive. The peaceful transfer of power comes with a massive price tag. When all the bills are added up, the 2017 celebration will cost an estimated $175 million to $200 million. The total includes the official parties and dinners, the concert, the swearing-in at the Capitol, the parade, the inaugural balls, and all the police, military, and security personnel required to keep everyone safe. And then this was shocking. About $70 million will come from private donations, and the taxpayers will foot the rest of the bill. So it costs a lot to inaugurate a president, but I'm guessing not nearly as much as it costs to coronate a king. Now, that word coronation, it's defined as a ceremony in which a person is made king or queen, as is scheduled to happen on Saturday May 6th, 2023, so clear your calendars for that. It is the day when King Charles III and his wife Camilla will be crowned as King and Queen of the United Kingdom, and many of you are wondering, what on earth does this have to do with our text today? Well, what it has to do, Mark 1, 9 through 11 gives the account of the inauguration or coronation of King Jesus. It is the account of the inauguration or coronation of King Jesus. It is the official beginning of his public ministry, an event so important that it is referenced in all four Gospels. So that tells us something right there. All four Gospel writers thought it was so important it needed to be included. But rather than his inauguration or coronation looking something like this as a 
presidential inauguration or the coronation of an English monarch, the inauguration or coronation of King Jesus looked like this. Quite different. Quite different. So, a muddy river in the Middle East. Would you please stand with me as I read today's text? It is short. It is only three verses long, but it is packed with important meaning for us today. Mark chapter 1, verse 9, it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, Quiet our hearts, quiet our minds, quiet our hands, quiet our phones. And God, give us just some sacred moments right now to hear your Spirit's voice through your word. I ask for your help this morning. I pray that the preaching of this passage would be an act of worship on my part to you. And God, we would leave here today knowing that your Spirit has spoken something to us that we needed to hear. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, what was the inauguration or coronation of King Jesus? It was his baptism by John the Baptist. The inauguration or coronation of King Jesus was his baptism by John the Baptist. But here's a problem, and I would say potentially a really big problem. Because you see, last week we learned in Mark chapter 1, verse 4, when we were learning about this character, John the Baptist, it, it said in Mark 1, 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so last week we defined repentance as a complete change of orientation involving a judgment upon the past and a deliberate redirection for the future. Repentance visually illustrated by the military command, about face, right? You see, in repentance, we turn away from sin, we turn toward God, we turn away from the old life, we turn toward the new life, but here's the problem as it relates to Jesus. The scriptures clearly state that Jesus was sinless. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, here's the question. Why would the sinless Jesus submit himself to John's baptism of repentance? He had no need of turning away from sin and turning toward God. And apparently, John the Baptist had this very same question. He didn't understand it either. So check this out. Um, this was fascinating to me. When you put Mark's account of the baptism of Jesus next to Matthew's account of the baptism of Jesus, you see something very interesting, um, very similar. Yellow corresponds to yellow, blue to blue, green to green. But Matthew has this extra purple part. And in Matthew's extra purple part, verses 4 through 15, verse 14 reads this, John would have prevented Jesus, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? 
So again, apparently, John has the same question we do. Jesus, this is a baptism of repentance. You are sinless. Why am I doing this? But then Jesus replied in verse 15 of Matthew 3, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Or as the New Living Translation reads, It should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. This is something that God the Father required. The question is, well, why? I believe that question is answered by three elements of the baptism of Jesus. There are going to be three elements to this baptism that help us to answer that question. Why did a sinless Jesus need a baptism of repentance? So these three elements, they include the Son's acceptance in verse 9, the Spirit's anointing in verse 10, and the Father's approval in verse 11. And so we're going to methodically work our way through each of these. Again, it's part of the beauty of having only three verses. We can kind of chew slowly, right? Any of you really fast eaters like I am? Yeah, um, we need to chew slowly this morning. So let's take a look at the first of these, the Son's acceptance. Look with me again at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. We draw your attention to that location, Nazareth of Galilee. Remember from our map last week, um, the, the area where John the Baptist was baptizing, somewhere in that red circle, we don't know the precise location, but it was likely somewhere there on the Jordan River, which runs from the Sea of Galilee to the north to the Dead Sea in the south. Now, as we try to get some understanding of distances, this location was about 20 miles east of Jerusalem, and about 90 miles southeast of Nazareth. Nazareth is located in a region known as Galilee. Nazareth was Jesus's hometown. It's where he grew up, which is why you often hear him referred to as Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Nazarene. But one thing you got to know about Nazareth is that it was a town of poor reputation, especially among the Jews. Why? It was heavily influenced by Gentiles. It's, it's quite a distance from Jerusalem, you'll see. And so it was heavily influenced by Gentiles. And this is why when Jesus was calling his first disciples, we read in John 1, it says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, Hey, we have found him whom Moses wrote in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now listen to what Nathanael says. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right, so that was the understanding of the nature of the town of Nazareth. It was the most unlikely of towns from which the Messiah would emerge. So why did God choose it? Why would God choose Nazareth as opposed to the holy city of Jerusalem? Well, probably for the same reason that God chose John the Baptist as the herald of Jesus rather than the priests. The Messiah coming from Nazareth instead of Jerusalem would be a rebuke of the hypocritical and self-serving religious authorities of the day. It would have gotten their attention. It would have been a, a stinging insult to them that the Messiah did not come from Jerusalem. And further, such humble beginnings for Jesus in Nazareth would be consistent with a humble Savior. And so verse 9 tells us, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And I want to draw your attention to those two words, Jesus came. We could easily read over those 
Not paying any attention to them, but I think they're very significant. Jesus came. Why are they significant? Because they communicate the son's acceptance of his calling. You see, for 30 years or so, Jesus had lived in that town of Nazareth, faithfully going about his daily life, working with his hands, and waiting. Waiting for what? Waiting for the time to come when he would begin his public ministry. How would he know when it was time to begin his public ministry? Well, there would be the emergence of Elijah to come, who was really John the Baptist. When John the Baptist comes on the scene, it was a signal, Jesus, it is time. But with this emergence of John the Baptist and this time coming, there was a moment of decision. Would Jesus... Or wouldn't Jesus step out onto the world stage to fulfill his father's purpose? Well, thankfully, he did. He willfully traveled that 90 miles or so from Nazareth to the place where John was baptizing, demonstrating that he was fully on board with God's mission to rescue sinful humanity. He was, in fact, surrendered to the will of the Father. But... This surrender to the will of the Father would require Jesus to be counted as a sinful human. As we read in Isaiah 53, 12, the prophetic words speaking of the coming of Jesus, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And then 1 Peter 3, 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Here's the point. The baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist would number Jesus with the transgressors. The baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist would number Jesus with the transgressors. Though he was sinless, and he was, and he is, He would be counted as one of us and then take upon himself the penalty for our sins. I believe that as it relates to John the Baptist, we can even take this a step further. This is something I hadn't considered before. But check this out. John the Baptist was of the tribe of Levi. He was a direct descendant of Aaron the priest. And one of the duties of priests in the Old Testament was to present the sacrifices before the Lord. John's baptism of Jesus could be seen as a priestly presentation of the ultimate sacrifice which was being made for sin. As John would go on to say, you're familiar with this verse, we refer to it fairly frequently, John 1.29, John the Baptist sees Jesus walking toward him and John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist presenting the ultimate sacrifice. Sacrificed. All of this is wrapped up in the Son's acceptance. Jesus came from Nazareth to be baptized by John. His willful choice to leave his hometown, to come to the Jordan River, to be baptized by John, Jesus came, and I'm so glad that he did. The next element of the baptism is the Spirit's anointing. The Spirit's anointing. Look at verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, which I believe tells us something about the mode of baptism, 
Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, the first thing I want you to notice in this verse is that it is the first appearance of that word that we mentioned in week one of the series, immediately. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. In Greek, again, the Greek word euthus. It's used 59 times in the New Testament. 41 of the 59 are in the Gospel of Mark. 11 of those are in the very first chapter. Why does Mark use it so much? Because it highlights action, right? And Mark is the Gospel of action. It's the show-me gospel, focusing more on the works of Jesus than the words of Jesus. And action we've got here in verse 10. The heavens, it says, being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. If this were a movie, can you imagine the special effects that they would use to, to try to portray the heavens being torn open, that phrase, torn open? In Greek, it's the same as that which was used for the veil in the temple being torn apart. So this was a violent act. This was dramatic. This was big. And it was partial fulfillment of Isaiah 64.1. Isaiah 64, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That's exactly what's happening here, is it not? This very Spirit of God descends like a dove on Jesus, anointing Him as the Christ, an event which was also prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 11.2. And the Spirit of the Lord, it says, shall rest upon Him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then Isaiah 42, 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So here at the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist, we have the fulfillment of these prophecies as the Spirit comes and comes upon Jesus as a dove. As Jesus said of himself in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now remember, that word Christ, what is that word, the significance of that word? It's not a name, it's a title. It's a title that literally means anointed one. And so here in Mark 1, at Jesus' baptism, we have the anointing of Jesus with the Holy Spirit, acknowledging his inauguration, his coronation as Messiah, as King, it's all happening right here before our eyes. Now, there is also a very important practical reason for the Spirit to come upon Jesus. And this one's a little bit challenging for us, but I believe it to be absolutely true. And it has practical implications for us today in how we live our lives. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is preaching. And Peter says in verse 37 of Acts 10, he says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, that's what we're reading about in Mark 1, with the Holy Spirit, all right, and with power. That phrase, with power, I want us to pay close attention to. For you see, and this is the challenging part, but hang with me. In his incarnation, 
Jesus voluntarily laid aside the independent use of his divine attributes, including his power. Let me just say that again. In his incarnation, Jesus voluntarily laid aside the independent use of his divine attributes, including his power. Then you might ask, well, he did lots of miracles. He did lots of signs and wonders. Then where did his power come from? From the Holy Spirit that descended upon him when he was baptized by John. Now, what does that have to do with us? We're in a lot of ways in a similar boat to Jesus, depending on the Holy Spirit for divine power. And Jesus went before us to show us what a life of Holy Spirit dependence looks like. Just as Jesus was completely dependent upon the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, guess what? So are we. He shows us what it looks like. So that is the Son's acceptance, the Spirit's anointing. Let's have that third element, the Father's approval. In Mark chapter 11, the religious leaders asked this question in verse 28. By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? This question is answered right here in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, where it says, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now, one of my favorite things about these verses in this story, this account, is how it clearly shows us all three persons of the Trinity. Do you see it? God the Son is baptized. God the Spirit descends like a dove, anointing Jesus and empowering him for ministry. God the Father speaks from heaven. I think this is one of the most vivid Trinitarian passages in all of the scriptures. All three persons of the Trinity, front and center. One God, three persons. Yes, it is a paradox, it is a divine mystery, but it is a beautiful truth about the character and essence of our God. Now, what does the Father speak from heaven? Back to verse 11. The Father says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And so, when those religious leaders asked that question, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do them? That authority is given by none other than God the Father. God Almighty declares Jesus to be his Son, and places his seal of approval on him. The Father said something very similar to this on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17, verse 5. He was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am pleased, well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus the Christ would operate in the power of the Holy Spirit and with the authorization of God the Father. Now, there's something, I believe, very encouraging and personal for us here in the Father's affirmation of His Son. I believe somebody here today needs to hear this. When I read it, I thought, oh, this is important. Um, It's a quote by commentator J.C. Ryle. I'm going to go through it slowly, chew slowly. This is what it says. There is a rich... Mine of comfort in these words for all of Christ's believing members. 
in themselves and in their own doings, they see nothing to please God. They are daily sensible of weakness, shortcoming, and imperfection in all their ways. But let them recollect that the Father regards them as members of His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. He sees no spot in them. He beholds them as in Christ, clothed in His righteousness and invested with His merit. They are accepted in the Beloved, And when the holy eye of God looks at them, or can I just say looks at us, he is well pleased. That's beautiful. That's so important. Satan, the accuser, loves to just beat on us and beat on us and make us feel worthless and make us think that God is constantly angry with us. He's constantly disappointed with us. We can never please him. The fact of the matter is our position in Christ. When the Father looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his Son. And guess what? He he is well pleased, not because of anything we've done, but because of Christ. I hope that encourages you today. So we have these three elements to the baptism of Jesus, answering that question. Why why did the sinless Jesus need a baptism of repentance? The elements are the Son's acceptance of his mission, the Spirit's anointing of him with power, and also acknowledging his identity, this title, the Christ. And number three, the Father's approval, giving authorization to what it is he's about to do. Let's put all these pieces together. Um, Just for a second here, what did the baptism of Jesus accomplish? We want to look at it through a little bit different angle. I believe the baptism of Jesus accomplished the following. It inaugurated his public ministry. We saw that in verse 9. It identified him with sinful humanity. It associated him with John's ministry, which was important, as we saw last week, because John came in fulfillment to prophecy. And so as John comes in fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus' connection with John means he is a fulfillment of prophecy. All of the dots are being connected as they were intended to be. Um, It revealed the triune God, as we mentioned. We see the Father's voice, the Son baptized, the Spirit descending as a dove. It showed Jesus' total dependence on the Holy Spirit, and it demonstrated his approval by his Father. There's a lot accomplished in that inauguration or coronation in the Jordan River with the baptism of John the Baptist. Now, let's talk about application, answering that question, how should we then live? Three things for you this morning. Number one, be obedient like Jesus. Be obedient like Jesus. Remember those two words, Jesus came. He made a decision, a decision to obey To come from Nazareth to the Jordan River, the decision made to obey the will of the Father, knowing that it would ultimately lead to his crucifixion. Church, similarly, the Father is going to call us to do some hard things. Most likely, it's not going to involve crucifixion, but he's going to call us to do hard things. He is going to call us to pick up our crosses daily and to follow him. He is going to call us to sacrifice our wants, our desires, our preferences for a higher calling, all of which will bring us to points of decision. Will we or won't we? 
One thing that we see throughout Scripture is that though obedience is hard, it is always accompanied by God's presence, God's power, and God's provision. If you want to experience God's presence, His power, and His provision, make the choice, the willful decision to obey, because God will meet you there no matter how difficult and challenging His calling is upon your life. On the other hand, as we can all attest, disobedience is always accompanied by consequence. It may temporarily seem like the easier way. It may temporarily seem like the more comfortable and the better way, but in the big picture, as we know, we forfeit way more than we gain by making choices of disobedience. We must decide to be obedient like Jesus, even when the calling is hard. Commentator William Barclay, he said, the undecided life is the wasted life, the frustrated life, the discontented life, and often the tragic life. And you know, that could describe a lot of us in this room this morning. We may not be, in our minds, guilty of blatant disobedience, but we may very well be guilty of indecision or of not making a decision, of hesitation, but we know, as, as parents, we've probably used this phrase, delayed obedience is disobedience. And that very well could be us, the undecided life. The life where we're like, you know what, I'm not going to blatantly run the other, but I'm not going to do anything either. The undecided life is the wasted life, the frustrated life, the discontented life, and often the tragic life. What decision is God calling you to make today? And will you obey? Secondly, be empowered like Jesus. Be empowered like Jesus. Again, how remarkable is it that that same Holy Spirit, that when the, the heavens were torn open and came down in the form of a dove and rested upon Jesus, anointing him for ministry, empowering him for what was to come, that's the same Holy Spirit that lives in you and me. The same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus to do signs and wonders, to perform miracles, is the same Holy Spirit that lives in you and me. That does raise a very practical question, an important one. If it is the same Holy Spirit, then why aren't we as powerful as Jesus? That's fair. That's a good question. I have that question. And there, there are two things that came to my mind as I wrestled with that question this week. Number one, let us not forget Jesus was sinless. Jesus was sinless. Now, why does that matter? Well, because I believe it's true that it is our sin that so often grieves the Holy Spirit and limits his power and his activity in our lives. This also includes the sin of unbelief. Sin has a way of terribly sabotaging the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives and clearly causing us not to be all that we could or should be in his power. Clearly, Jesus did not have that problem. He was sinless. Second reason that we aren't as powerful as Jesus, number two, Jesus was the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, which means that God had a very clear and specific mission and purpose for his life, which included a lot of miracles, a lot of signs and wonders that help to authenticate his identity as the Christ. We are not the Christ. Amen? 
And so we should not expect that the power of the Holy Spirit will operate in us in exactly the same way, in exactly the same degree as it was in Jesus. We are not the Christ. However, it is my fierce conviction that there is so much more that the Holy Spirit wants to do in us and through us than he has so far. For our good, for the good of our community and world, and ultimately for God's glory. And that far too much of what we do in our lives, even things that we do in the name of Jesus, they're not done in the power of the Spirit, but in the weakness of the flesh. Which is why so frequently we are weak, we are impotent. Flesh gives birth to what? Flesh. But spirit gives birth to spirit. Church, for us to be the bride that God intends for us to be for the bridegroom, for us to make the impact in our community and world that God intends for us to make, for us to be victorious over the evil one as God intends for us to be victorious, for us to live the abundant life as God intends for us, we must be empowered like Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Now, the good news is there really is no reason we can't be. There really is no reason that we can't be. So, Be obedient like Jesus. Be empowered like Jesus. Number three, be baptized like Jesus. Be baptized like Jesus. Now, question, do you have to be baptized as a believer to be saved? I thought there'd be a little more robust answer to that question, okay? No, you do not have to be baptized as a believer to be saved. Otherwise, the thief on the cross He wasn't baptized, was he? What did Jesus say? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Here's a follow-up question. Do you have to be baptized as a believer to be obedient? I believe you do. I believe that to be true. Listen to the word of the Lord. Matthew chapter 28, 19, the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is directly connected to discipleship in ways and reasons that God the Father has determined. Baptism is important, and it is connected intricately with the Great Commission. Acts 2.38, and Peter said to them, Repent and do what? Be baptized. It's not a suggestion. It's not a good idea. It's not optional. It's a command. Repent And be baptized, every one of you. I believe there's a clear order here. Repent, be baptized. Baptism, evidence of repentance, a demonstration of repentance. So the only conclusion that I can make from these passages is that baptism is a commanded step of obedient discipleship. doesn't save you, but it is a commanded step of obedient discipleship. Now, from where... I'm understanding the scriptures. It doesn't matter if you were baptized as an infant and have yet to be baptized as a believer, or if you've simply been a believer for many years and have not yet been baptized as a believer. The command to be baptized, regardless of your age, still stands. There are no qualifications. And it is a commanded step of obedient discipleship. 
It does a couple things. Number one, it crosses that line of giving a public declaration of your faith in Jesus Christ to God be the glory. I've known some people who, for whatever reason, um, either they were baptized as infants or they just never were baptized as believers, even though they had been believers for many years, um, they got baptized later in life. Stan Zaka, raise your hand. Yeah. And uh, did you regret doing How old were you when you got baptized? 40-something? You're a lot older now, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> Been a believer many years. Been a believer many years prior to that. For whatever reason, crossed that line, recognizing the necessary step of obedience, was baptized. Any regrets for that? Not a one. Not a one. To God be the glory, great things he has done. I've never met a person who was baptized later in life as a believer, either because they were baptized as an infant or they just never were and who didn't say, that was awesome. That was awesome. You know, it's interesting. If there was ever anyone who didn't need to be baptized or shouldn't have to be baptized, it was Jesus. And yet in his baptism, he sets for us such an example of humble, submissive obedience to the Father. The same kind of humble, submissive obedience that is to be the character of his followers who are commanded to be baptized as believers. May we walk as Jesus walked. And if that is speaking to anyone this morning, I would just encourage you, follow through. Don't squash it. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit as we were just talking about. If the Spirit is speaking to you about the importance of taking that step of obedience in your discipleship with believers' baptism, let's do this. Let's get it done. What are we waiting for? Let's take this step of obedience and let's move on to the next. So how should we then live? Be obedient like Jesus. Be empowered like Jesus. Be baptized like Jesus. Next week, Mark chapter 1 verses 12 through 13, and uh, next week I'm going to have to probably pull in some stuff from the other Gospels because Mark only gives two verses about the whole temptation of Jesus. And I feel like, ah, we, we want to dive a little bit deeper probably than just the information that Mark gives us. So would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we are needy, needy people. We confess before you our weakness and our desperate need to be empowered by your Spirit the way Jesus was empowered by your Spirit. God, I thank you for the truth of your word that if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And in certain passages it speaks of he will give the Spirit to those who ask him. It is simply a request away for us to be filled with your Spirit and surrendered so that we can experience the fullness of of your presence and your power. God, make it so in our lives as individuals and in our collective life as a church. And then, Father, we cry out to you that you would make us obedient as we are empowered by your Spirit, that you would make us obedient even and especially in those hard things that you call us to. Forgive us for our delayed obedience, for our paralysis by analysis of our rationalizations, of our coming up with all the reasons why we shouldn't when your spirit is clearly told us that we should. So God, would you help us in whatever it is that you're calling us to, to follow through. And God, I pray for anyone who may be here this morning and they've been wrestling or thinking through this whole idea of believer's baptism. 
God, I pray that they would take that step and be blessed, that they would be blessed, knowing that that is your intent, and that we as a church would therefore be blessed along with them, celebrating, acknowledging that they are a child of God, and they are among us, and we are all in this together. God, make it so. I pray that the baptism waters of this church would flow every single week. We ask this in Jesus' name.